Good evening. This is Justin Ford in the studio for Africa Christian Action Salt and Light on Radio Tigerberg. Tonight we are discussing ministering in our municipalities. Dr. Hammond, on the afternoon of Sunday the 2nd of October, you and a group of concerned Christians gathered in a large and strategically located traffic island with large trees and lots of shade in the Cape Town CBD. What were you doing there? Thank you. Sunday the 2nd of October was International Life Change Sunday. So, in fact, the first Sunday of October has been designated International Life Chain Sunday. There's something like 1,600 different locations, over a million Christians worldwide make a stand for life. Just in North America, there were over 1,000 life chains. So there were life chains also in Durban and Kempton Park. And Well, in Cape Town, we've been doing this now for 30 years. Every year since 1992 in South Africa, life chains have been one of the positive, practical ways we can stand up for the sanctity of life and speak up for the right to life of pre-born babies because we've been having these life chains uh, at first the first one was actually held in Newlands and then up in Belleville and from 1993 we've been holding them at the entrance to the waterfront opposite the Cape Town International Conference Center in Botenkruk Street downtown Cape Town and it's normally from 2 to 4 p.m. on Sunday afternoon so that churches can uh, take part and so it's, it's been a wonderful time of positive practical placard, protest, witness, it's a prayer vigil, um, we sing, we pray, uh, and, well, normally we try and distribute literature. What happened at last year's Life Chain, which took place at the same location? Well, after 29 years of peacefully, quietly, and generally without any police presence, we wouldn't normally see so much as a traffic officer, uh, but suddenly last year we had this massive uh, turnout of police. We had uh, public order policing, that's the right police with one of their right vehicles parked on the island, large contingent. We had hordes of metro police and traffic police, and uh, it was quite extraordinary. And uh, we were suddenly informed, well, of course, they were trying to enforce the masquerade madness. Uh, it was all part of the lockdown lunacy and so on. And uh, <laughs> we had to point out that, of course, according to uh, South African legislation 1997 on uh, public protest, it's illegal to obscure your face or to wear any kind of facial uh, covering, any uh, thing that obscures your face or any mask and specifies mask if you're involved in a demonstration. And, of course, the, the purpose there is accountability, you know, facial recognition and all that. And uh, so when I point this out to them, they said, no, but Parliament's uh, changed that law and said that's not possible. Parliament hasn't met since uh, February of, 19, uh, of 2020. Uh, so there's no way that this law can have been redundant. They said, no, well, it's superseded by... No, a, um, a regulation can't supersede a law. And um, anyway, they were saying we had to wear, wear masks. That was one harassment. Uh, but the main problem was that uh, they were telling us we had to stop distributing literature to traffic lights. And that seemed a bit bizarre um, because we've been doing this for 29 years without incident, without accident, without a problem. And there we have been uh, distributing thousands of leaflets at traffic lights. And it, it makes sense because people come along and they see there's a couple of hundred people with placards and there's banners and there's flags and they want to know more about it. And so they're often winding down the window, putting out the hand, wanting to get the literature to find out, you know, what is this all about, get more details. So the literature distribution and the placard protest go together. I mean, they, they ideal because, okay, people can see a, a couple of slogans, but it's, it's more important that they can read more details and get the contact details, the website, the email, telephone number and so on, for further follow-up. So um, it was a traffic officer 
who told us that we weren't allowed to do it. And when we asked about the regulations, he was extremely vague. He couldn't quite uh, tell us why. And then we pointed out, well, we do have uh, the right by the Bill of Rights for free distribution of information and freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, freedom of worship and all of this. And we've got an unrestricted right to uh, freedom to protest as well. And uh, why would you be inconsistently applying this? Because it seems every day at almost every traffic light around Cape Town, somebody's selling, marketing, distributing or begging something. And so uh, at traffic lights, we're pretty used to the fact that people are selling you all sorts of things, uh, not just magazines, but sometimes they try to distribute advertising for um, it could be a garage, it could be a new apartment block, it could be tra um, um, these uh, state agents. But at any rate, I've never seen them restricted. And for that matter, during political campaigns, there's massive distribution of uh, leaflets relating to politics. There. And these are pro-life things. We're not selling anything. We're giving away pro-life literature. And this traffic officer made a big song and a dance about it. He even tried to suggest that we had to take our banners off the footbridge and we asked why, and he said it could distract motorists. So I said, well, that doesn't seem very consistent because we have trucks with all kinds of um, very intricate advertising inside. We've got buses with intricate advertising. We've got adverts. We have billboards. There's all sorts of things that could distract you on the sides of the roads almost anywhere. But a good driver mustn't get distracted. He must focus. And anyway, in 29 years, we've never had anyone distracted to such extent there's been accidents at any of our life chains or marches for life or protests. You know, what a strange thing if you're not allowed to have a distraction on the road. I would have thought every advert is a potential distraction. And during uh, election time, uh, there are many uh, <laughs> distractions on our, on our traffic, uh, traffic and lights. Every, and every, lamppost. every lamppost has mm. multiple of these uh, posters. Yeah. What happened during your preparations for this year's Life Chain? And what happened at the actual event? Well, what was surprising was, uh, you know, we um, informed the events uh, gatherings of city of Cape Town and next thing uh, and we were having very nice discussions with them and everything was fine and no problem but then a, a traffic officer um, wrote there that uh, no the uh, traffic department will not support any uh, distribution of literature and so they insisted that they put their participants not permitted to enter the roadway participants not permitted capital not uh, permitted to hand out pamphlets in between vehicles on the roadway so um, that was um, uh, put in big and bold uh, and capped uh, in this uh, permit uh, staging of gathering for yesterday, which seems a bit inconsistent because we've got people doing this all the time. And uh, unfortunately, there was quite a contingent of traffic officers and metro police there um, to ensure that we did not distribute any literature at the traffic lights. But while we were prevented... Other people were distributing leaflets here without anybody challenging them at all. So it looked like it was targeting specifically the pro-life Christian literature that we would distribute, which seems awfully inconsistent and therefore a breach of our Bill of Rights. Um, talking about our Bill of Rights, can you just uh, clarify what rights South African citizens have regarding public gatherings and demonstrations? Yes, it's, it's very clear from the Bill of Rights, uh, which is Chapter 2 of the Southern Constitution, Section 9, the state may not unfairly discriminate directly or indirectly on base of religion, conscience, belief, and uh, even says and birth. Uh, also, Section 11, everyone has the right to life, which is actually what we're protesting about. Everyone does have the right to life, and abortion stops a beating heart. Um, section 16, 
uh, everyone has the right to freedom of expression, which includes the freedom to receive information ideas or to impart information ideas, which is exactly what the life chain is doing. We, we're imparting information not only by placards and banners, but also by literature, which is received by people who want to roll down their windows and receive it. So, you know, it's not like anyone's been forced to take the literature. And people are eagerly winding down the windows and putting up their hands because they want to read more about what's going on. So, um, uh, unfortunately, uh, Section 17 was also violated that uh, our right uh, to, to peacefully assemble, demonstrate, and to picket. Um, so that's another one, Section 17. And then there's also a quote from our Regulations of uh, Gatherings Act of um, 1993. The right to protest is a fundamental right in South Africa and serves as a bedrock to our democracy. So, well, um, I would have thought that we had rock-solid uh, legal Bill of Rights constitutional foundation for the right to demonstrate, as we have done for 30 years consistently at this very location, and uh, to distribute literature, which has never been challenged before. And yet we were prevented. And that's sad because we could have distributed anything from 4,000 to 5,000 leaflets to people. And we specially printed a whole lot of leaflets on these very things. Abortion, the facts, uh, it's my body, uh, and a whole range of other good uh, pro-life uh, leaflets that were available to be distributed, but we could only give to some pedestrians and uh, those vehicles that were directly able to be reached from us standing on the pavement. But we could not, while vehicles were stopped at traffic light, go in and hand it to those who wanted it because of this strange new regulation that somebody says is there. Um, as you already said, there's um, inconsistency in the application of the laws um, you know, as we see a lot of people uh, um, begging and uh, handing out leaflets at traffic lights. Um, why do you think the city officials want to obstruct a completely harmless and a peaceful pro-life gathering one that was that has become an annual event? Well, I'm sure that many don't want. In fact, uh, even amongst the public order policing, that's the riot police folks who were sent to be there. They were personally very friendly and polite. Uh, the Metro Police we spoke to also very sympathetic and supportive. Even the traffic police we dealt with. But one traffic official uh, high up has given the instruction that, that we are violating the Road Traffic Act, which, again, it doesn't seem to make sense because when you look at the restrictions, the only reasons you could restrict a protest application is if it will result in serious disruption of traffic. Well, we didn't disrupt any traffic. Um, if the gathering will result in injury. Well, we've never had an injury at any of our protests, which a lot of political parties in this country can't say for their events. And uh, also if the gathering will result in extensive damage to property. Well, we've never damaged property. We haven't, so, forget about throwing bricks, we haven't broken glass. We, we don't even leave litter. In fact, we pick up litter. We leave the places better than we found it. And uh, so the only reasons that they could have uh, said that we couldn't do it don't apply. Um, because there's no damage to property, no damage to vehicles, no disruption of traffic. Um, you know, we're not burning tires and blocking roads and <laughs> causing problems. So uh, you would understand if they were stopping those kind of protests. But um, at any rate, we do need to have people in the mayoral office or in uh, city council to send a clear message through to uh, the traffic department that they should not infringe on the constitutional rights of um, Capetonians to receive and impart information and freedom of conscience should not be infringed. What is the reception of the life chain by the public? Oh, 
overwhelmingly positive. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We, lots of thumbs up, lots of hooting, positive hooting, friendly waves and encouragement, people shouting words of encouragement out, out the windows. Uh, very, very little um, uh, negative indeed. You know, a couple of people make a rude sign, uh, a couple of um, thumbs down, but, uh, you know, compared to the hundreds of positive uh, feedback, there's no doubt that the bulk of Cape Tonians that are passing by this uh, pro-life protest indicate that they support what we're doing. What is the mature Christian response to unfair treatment or harassment? Well, we don't return evil for evil. We return good for evil. We seek to love our neighbors. We seek to do to others we want to be done unto. But I think when we unfairly are treated, just as when the Lord was assaulted uh, in the high priest's palace, he said, you know, if I've done wrong, uh, testify against me. But, um, you know, uh, he asked him to bring forward facts. And the Apostle Paul, when he was uh, arrested, uh, he appealed to his Roman citizenship and uh, the law and uh, uh, sought fair trial and even appealed uh, above uh, to the emperor when he was not receiving justice. So there's nothing wrong with us seeking justice, appealing. And we certainly are going to, uh, we already have sent off letters uh, to the office of the mayor and to uh, the uh, Commission of Police and City Councillors and others, and going to ask them to look into why it is that there's this unfair selective discrimination against pro-life Christians uh, in terms of distributing literature at traffic lights when others are able to do it. And we've been doing it for 30 years without any incident before. What I find striking and most relevant to the topic of abortion and pro-life is that in a superb article called Reclaiming Our Communities, you write, quote, for communities to be strong, their families need to be strong. For city councils to be good, the citizens need to be good. Mm -hmm. End quote. What's striking is that one of the reasons for the promotion of abortion is to weaken families, which in turn leads to weak communities. That's so true. The, the family is the basic building block of society. And what we're standing for is the basic strength of a family, uh, which is the first command God gave, to be fruitful and multiply. And so uh, it's to, to interfere with uh, the right to life is undermining the families. And uh, we are making a stand for adoption as the loving option and that uh, babies are a blessing, choose life, um, abortion, one dead, one wounded, every abortion um, uh, stops a beating heart, abortion, one heart uh, stops the other heart uh, broken, um, Jesus heals and forgives, abortion is a national sin, abortion, the ultimate child abuse, stop abortion, thou shalt not commit murder, abortion is murder. I mean, these are many of the signs. A wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are just some of the banners. Choose life. And uh, many great um, uh, verses and uh, scriptures up on these banners and posters. And I must say, it, you see families turning out. A lot of it is very, very positive. And what we're seeking to do is build families. You could see a lot of the life change yesterday consisted of families. And uh, this is what we're seeking to do is stronger families, not a whole bunch of uh, lone rangers rooming around and you might have a single mother here and wild geese, males not taking responsibility for their families. And So we, we stand for strong families and we, we are pro-life and pro-family. And I would have thought the life chain is a positive, constructive way of making a stand for what's going to be healthy in our communities. Let's face it, our economy can't grow unless families are growing. And who pays most of the bills and rates and taxes? Well, actually hardworking fathers who committed to their wives and children. So uh, it's in the municipality's interest, you would think, to encourage life change. Aside from the harassment by city officials, were there any other things about the management of our city that struck you during the life chain? Sadly, yes. 
the filthy, neglected state of our public places. Now, I mean, bearing in mind that uh, Cape Town is meant to be a major tourist uh, attraction, and this is a major tourist thoroughfare. It's meant to be a beautiful garden. In fact, uh, in preparation for the 2010 uh, World Cup soccer, they built the footbridge particularly over there, and it's meant to be a beautiful park where people are going from extremely expensive hotels uh, geared for foreign tourists to walk towards the waterfront and other parts in the city. And it was just strewn with not just litter and filth and pollution, but uh, it just the degradation of the gardens and uh, the mess that it's in, filthy, neglected state. And, you know, when you think that our rates and taxes have skyrocketed, but the service have plummeted. I mean, the beautiful gardens and virtues of our suburbs have been allowed to decay and die, and the streets are now strewn with rubbish, litter and graffiti. The countryside has been polluted, filled with plastic bags, there's broken glass all around. So there's obviously a lot of litterbugs and loiterers and beggars and opportunistic thieves and gangsters prowling, and they break into homes and vehicles and mug poor tourists, mind their own business. So turning what used to be close-knit communities into areas resembling a war zone uh, with zoo-like bars over windows, high electric and razor wire fences surrounding what used to be friendly neighbourhoods. So I felt that um, particularly on that island, it's it was the filthiest I've seen the island. If the city would put basic attention into prosecuting litter and pollution and uh, caring for our verds and public virtues, public places, uh, gardens, and uh, I don't think people are going to be giving a good account of Cape Town if they've got to wade through filth and litter um, to get to our tourist destinations. Yeah, I suppose if the city fathers would. Uh, really sincere, they would have actually cleaned up the, the venue after receiving your application rather than harassing you. Well, they could have put that if because a whole lot of people are coming there. And to be honest, some of it was dangerous because you know, some people come with babies and children and they want to crawl around the grass, but there's broken glass and there's, and there's syringes and needles and all sorts of garbage on the on. So, uh, yes, it, it's a health hazard, quite aside from a danger. And uh, they should be cleaning up the verges on a daily basis anyway. But why on earth would they not have prepared it if they know there's going to be a gathering of families on that particular venue, specific venue? And yet every year, it's, it actually has been getting worse. What are the characteristics, Dr. Hammond, that define a good public official, such as a city councillor? Well, our Lord Jesus taught in Matthew 20, verse 26, whoever desires to become great amongst you, let him be your servant. And here the Lord lays the foundation why we have cabinet ministers a minister being another word for servant, and why cabinet ministers used to sign uh, their letters with your humble servant. And our Lord Jesus made clear that civil authorities are to be public servants. Uh, all over Matthew 25, we see this. So it's for this reason that officials in civil governments are called ministers or servants of God. And the word used here in 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13 is deacon. So just as a minister in the church is to be a minister of grace, a minister in government is to be a minister of justice. Both are serving God and man. So the concept that civil government is a servant of its citizens is a uniquely Christian concept that originate from these very verses from the teachings of Christ. So the concept of a prime minister as the first servant. Now, I remember receiving letters signed, your humble servant, from people in government. So, uh, in fact, when I was growing up, city councillors and members of parliament were not actually paid for their services. They received only basic expenses for travel expenses and they needed to have real jobs to sustain themselves. So, for example, um, 
was very clear to me when I entered high school. My first history teacher, Mr. Reese Davies, was a member of the Parliament in Rhodesia. Um, I was in Bulawayo, and he wasn't absent from school often. Parliament only met a couple of weeks a year. And I remember asking, um, sir, how can you be a teacher and a member of Parliament? He said, oh, we don't get paid for being members of Parliament. We need a real job too. And, uh, well, interesting. And he even said, he, while he could receive a free train ticket to travel to Parliament in Salisbury, but if he wanted to fly, that was at his own expense. They didn't provide free flights for, for parliamentarians. So plainly there was a time when government um, was not for personal enrichment. It wasn't a get-rich-quick scheme. But people offered themselves for public service as a town council or member of Pond. Um, they had to have been successful job providers in the community and able to donate their time to city council legislative duties because the city council money was not for them. It was only for the communities. And so uh, entering politics at that time was not a way to get rich. Civil servants were actually sacrificing their time and their talent for the common good. So if we presume, well, if we, uh, presume that present-day so-called civil servants are not doing their jobs out of a sense of duty or out of, an, out of interest for the community's well-being, but rather to benefit from high-paying public salaries, then these people might be open to anything that increases their wealth, such as corruption. Is that not so? Oh, yes, no. I mean... Uh, the salaries, the exorbitant, extravagant, highly generous salaries and fringe benefits that um, people in government departments receive, uh, especially in city council too, by the way, is unfortunately not the only way in which they get rich because uh, according to the African Union, their reports on corruption, over 32% of the total gross domestic product or GDP of Africa is looted every year by government corruption. That's a total third of the gross domestic product of Africa is stolen by governments. Uh, that, by the way, is 10 times more than all of foreign aid to Africa. So we don't need foreign aid if we could just cut corruption by 10%. Imagine if you could cut corruption by 20%, and that would be better than double the amount of foreign aid we're getting today. Well, it would be even better if we could cut by 100%. But um, just think how much corruption steals from everyone. Uh, I've heard a politician say corruption doesn't hurt anyone. Well, that's not true. Corruption steals from absolutely everyone and corruption chases away tourists and investors and job creators. It devalues the currency. It reduces the value of everyone's savings and earnings and pensions. It erodes and implodes any economy. So corruption, more than any other single cause, is responsible for most of the poverty and most of the joblessness in society. And so when we see problems, we see rising prices in the shops and so on, let us remember that this is just an example of how corruption is stealing from everyone. What can we do to overcome corruption in our community, Dr. Hammond? Well, I believe first and foremost, we do need to rediscover the Christian work ethic, the biblical principles uh, for e economics. We should be studying what the Bible teaches on economics, on free enterprise, on free market, and on honest money. And there are biblical solutions to crime and biblical commands to a nation and the political principles and teachings of Christ. All of these will help us to apply the Lordship Christ to all areas of life. And in this, education is foundational because the philosophy of education in this generation will become the philosophy of government in the next generation. But secondly, we can all do something to reclaim and restore our communities. The biblical principle is each community has the God-given right and responsibility to elect their own leaders from amongst their own people. And this was established during the evangelization of Europe over 14 centuries ago. It's been recognized in the common laws of England um, established under King Alfred the Great and the Dooms and in Magna Carta of 1215, the English Bill of Rights of 1689, and other foundational statutes. The key principles are these. No taxation is lawful 
unless it has been approved by representatives of the class and community who are being taxed, and the right of every community to govern themselves and to determine who are to be entrusted with the stewardship of their resources. This is foundational, and it was a foundational for over a millennium of Christian civilization. So I think the first key principle here is only ratepayers should be voting in municipal elections, and only ratepayers should be controlling their municipalities, and that should include the police. The police should come from that community, be answerable to that community, be paid by that community, and when you've got the city councils of a genuine community, we don't mean a uni city, which can be a colossal cover for corruption, where uh, you go downtown and they don't know your community and they don't care, and you don't know them and you don't even know where they live. But a, a real community where it's it's that small community where you can literally uh, hold accountable your city councillors, you know what they're doing, they know what where you live, and um, uh, they're accountable. That's the only solution to this corruption. We've got to decentralise. The more centralised such as think globalism, the more corruption, the more decentralized, uh, the more accountability and the more efficiency. It's tremendous inefficiency in, in uh, the, the big top-down approach. So I would say we can, we can uh, deal with corruption by completely decentralizing and uh, getting back to genuine communities. And I remember when Paro ran Paro and Belleville ran Belleville and everything was run so well and all the verges were just like, gardens and you could see they took pride in the community and you didn't see lit and pollution and it was such a, a well-run community but with the unicity has come unaccountability corruption and uh, just like we don't care but it's not like the costs have gone down the rates and taxes doubled trebled quadrupled increased by a factor of 10 increased by a factor of 20 and just carried on on but as the rates and taxes skyrocketed the surface have plummeted what is the root cause of the deterioration in our communities? Well, to a large extent, I think this drastic deterioration in our communities come from secular humanism, secular humanist worldview, irresponsible news media, which is more distracting you from the real story than giving you the real news, and the exploitative entertainment industry, which has been undermining Christian foundations, biblical law, promoting situation ethics, glorifying violence, glamorizing crime, I mean, let's face it, the media, education, entertainment has, has a lot to blame. But it's also, to a large extent, the inevitable results of the amalgamation of municipalities and the centralization of power in uni cities. Because instead of local community control over their own municipalities with their own local police force to protect their interests and property, we have professional politicians who neither know the community nor care. And that's why we read in Nehemiah, uh, 4 verse 14, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. Nehemiah 2 verse 17 says, see the distress we're in, how the city lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that you may no longer be a reproach. And I think those are some of the solutions. And uh, right there you can see the problem. Uh, you have a a 10-point uh, list of uh, solutions. Could you quickly run through them, Dr. Hammond? Yes, so um, only long-term residents who've excelled in serving the community should be eligible to stand as candidates for any community. And I think when it comes to municipal elections, it actually would be better if it was individual candidates, uh, ultimately, who are known by that community and who live there. And uh, to to the honour of the Lord and as faithful stu stewards, only ratepayers should be allowed to vote in municipal elections because it's their money that's being voted on. And then not to attract professional politicians and those with a looting mentality, we should 
not be giving salaries beyond basic expenses for town councillors and mayors. There shouldn't be any opportunity for a civil servant to loot the resources so painstakingly and sacrificially built up over generations by residents and ratepayers. So decentralisation is absolutely essential. Each local community should have direct control over their own municipalities. And we mean every real community, not gerrymandering of joining together different groups to help on your political party control. There can be no toleration of litter or pollution. To eradicate crime, first priority is eradicate grime. That encourages it. No littering, no panhandling, no beggars, no opportunistic thieves tolerated in any community. And in charitable work, of course, must be supported and every opportunity given to help the less fortunate to groups like the Salvation Army and ARC. Uh, parks for children should be very carefully maintained, kept clean, safe, protected from broken glass and drug dealers and <laughs> drunkards and pedophiles. So our municipalities must become drug-free and crime-free, zero tolerance for crime. And they must set a high priority in restoring gardens and verges and traffic islands and beautify the inner cities, reforest the suburbs, set up lights in public area. All, all of these things will discourage crimes. And, of course, municipal taxes should only be allowed to be used for the local community. As our time is almost out, Dr. Hammond, please give our listeners contact details where they can learn more and obtain resources to promote the pro-life agenda and restore their communities. ChristianAction.org.za, www.ChristianAction.org.za. Our closing verse will be from Proverbs chapter 21, verse 15. When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Please join us next week at the same time, 104 FM on Radio Tigerberg, for the next program of Salt and Light. God bless and good night.